Good morning, Grace Community Church. Some of you turn your eyes up from that and you're like, whoa, who is this young blood up here? My name is Tannen Peters and I am the children's pastor. And I turn the reins over to Pastor John today. I think he still remembers how to do children's ministry. Um, but uh, it's a joy to be able to, to share in God's word with you this morning. Um, I, I got here about seven months ago, for those of you that are, are newer here to the church. So I haven't been here too long. Uh, but my wife, Ariel, my little son, Marcus, who's 19 months old, we have just loved uh, being a part of your family here at Grace Community. Your, your generosity, your hospitality, um, and, and just your, your attitude of, of warmth towards us has just been so encouraging, and, and we love that. We got a picture here of, of my, my wife and son. If you haven't seen them before, this was like the 15th attempt at this picture. If you guys, the selfies, it takes forever now. It's like you got to get the right one. So th- this was like after the 15th attempt. I love them very, very much. And we are, are pumped uh, and glad to be able to, to minister to you guys and to your kids. It's been a joy to do that. A little bit about myself. I, I grew up in Huntington, Indiana. It's about an hour and a half south of here. Grew up in the country on uh, 35 acres. Um, I was a 10-year 4-H member. So the, the Elkhart County Fair, to give you an idea, is about 100 times bigger than my county fair. Okay? <laughs> And uh, I, I, love, I love the fair. We, we raised sheep. Um, so I was a, a, a shepherd, an actual literal shepherd for, for a little while in my life. Played basketball, and basketball took me to Grace College where I met my wife. She played volleyball, and uh, we got married, had Marcus, and uh, now we're here. And uh, to, to kind of segue... I said I grew up on 35 acres, okay, and I I loved that experience, but that 35 acres, it felt like more like a thousand because we were surrounded by ag fields, okay? And on certain years, if the farmers planted corn, which sometimes they they usually did in unison, like you literally couldn't see our house. Like we lived back a quarter mile dirt road, secluded, like seriously, like no one could see us. I mean, you could have like hid a nudist colony back there. And the, the only people that would have known were, was a few surprise crop duster pilots. I mean, it's, it was secluded. I mean, I could do whatever I wanted. I could shoot my guns. I could run around. It didn't matter. I had the space. And it was awesome. I loved growing up like that. My wife, she grew up in a very nice home here in Goshen, suburban neighborhood subdivision. Very, very nice community. And so when we first got married and we first had the opportunity to purchase a home, bringing those two things together, there, there was some differences in opinion, so to speak. And right from the get-go, my wife and I had to begin making some compromises, okay? And uh, those compromises have made our marriage uh, very, very great. I, I love my wife and all of her likes and, and some of her dislikes a little bit. But we came together and we began searching for our, our first home, okay? And thankfully, we were able to land on a, a little piece of property and I, I was able to get one acre, okay? <laughs> and that one acre, I was thankful for it. I was like, okay. I, I can run around a little bit. We had a f- some fields around us. I, w- I was cool with that. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, Pastor Jim gives me a call and says, hey, Tan, let's, let's have breakfast. I want to talk to you about something. And so about nine months ago, I sat down with him. And over the course of a few weeks, he and the, the team offered me a position to come on, on staff here. And we accepted. And upon accepting the role here, we realized, okay, we're, we're probably going to have to start house hunting again. We'd only been in our one house for about 14 months, and I'll tell you, I love hunting a lot of things. Okay, I love hunting white-tailed deer, ducks, rabbits, squirrels, but I do not like hunting houses, okay? <laughs> if there is one thing that stresses me out, it is house hunting. My mother-in-law is even a real estate agent, and it makes the process actually a little bit easier. But I'll tell you, it, it, it just gets under my skin. And so 
as we were looking to move to the area, I began realizing, okay, in terms of value, affordability, where we want to be price-wise, where we want to be in proximity to the church, I ended up with 0.6 acres. And we live in a great subdivision just northwest of town. We have some incredible neighbors. But I got to say, there are some times when I just feel a little claustrophobic. There's some times where I feel like I just want to run and kind of stretch my legs there a little bit. Sometimes I go out in my front yard and I I shoot my bow. And I would just love it. Sometimes the neighbors wouldn't give me those looks sometimes. But over the course of the seven months, I got to say that it's a, it's a, you can laugh and stuff and I've laughed at myself with it. But over the course of these last seven months, I have, I've actually really wrestled with this. And I've, I've, I've wrestled with this, this desire to, to get out of there and to, to have what I had all of growing up. And it, and it's created me and I've battled with this, this discontentment of sorts within myself and so when, when Pastor Jim, he, he told me, Tan, I want, I want you to preach this Sunday, and here's the passage that I want you to preach. And I, I opened it up, and I, I read through it, and I was like, oh, man. It's one of those passages you're just like, Lord, I know you're going to be doing a work, because it's exactly what I needed to hear. What we're going to be diving in this morning is we're going to be uncovering what is the secret of contentment. And I think that secret is, is one that we're going to find most satisfying this morning. And so if you would all stand with me, we're going to read Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. If you do not have a Bible, um, we'll have some ushers come forward. If you just like to raise your hands, that's our free gift to you um, to have the scriptures this morning. Philippians chapter 4 starting in verse 10, and we will read to verse 13. If you would all like to read with me, we'll go ahead and start. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am, I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Awesome. You may have a seat. So as I was uh, beginning to, to look here, he opens this letter, this, this concluding remark of this section Paul does, and he thanks these Philippians for their gifts. But something had happened along the way that had halted them from giving to him more. You see, the Philippians, when Paul first started his very first journey, his first missionary journey as he was beginning his ministry, the Philippian church was actually the only church that gave and supported him. I'm sure there was other churches around, but they kind of all kind of stood back and they just kind of let Paul go. Whereas the Philippians, they believed in Paul. They loved Paul and they said, Paul, we're going to support you in everything that you're going to do. And so they sent him out with all kinds of gifts and support. But something had happened within about a 10-year period that had completely halted them from giving to him any longer. And so when Epaphroditus, who we learned about a couple uh, chapters earlier, came back to Paul with all of these gifts from the Philippian church, he is just overwhelmed with thankfulness. I mean, he is pumped up. John, uh, Pastor John next week is going to to dive specifically into um, their monetary generousness towards Paul. But the thing I want to really bank on this first opening uh, verse is Paul here, he elevates the, the positive in this Philippian church while downplaying the 10 years of not giving to him. And as I was thinking about that, that, that principle, that idea, I thought to myself, wow, how often in, in our relationships... How often do we tend to elevate the negative while downplaying the positive? 
Like I was even thinking about this in, in terms of some of you parents who your kids are now in school. And I know for me, there were times where I, I had a report card. I was an okay student. I worked hard. But math, man, math just killed me. Like my parents had to go get like a master's degree just to help me with my homework. Because it was just, math was hard for me. But sometimes I think we can, we can do it. And I'm going to use this as a metaphor. The kid, your kid can come home and he can maybe just do the option pass with his report card. He can kind of just flip it on the table and then he just like walks away. It's like this thing is on fire and he just wants to get rid of it. And he walks away, maybe into his room or she goes and sits in the living room or something and she just kind of leaves it there. So you go and you, you pick it up and you, you open it. You're like, oh, okay. I see an A, B, B plus, B, a C, a D. And how many? I've used this tendency, and I've, I've used, I'm using this as a metaphor. I, I've done this in my own relationship, even with my wife sometimes, where I'll go in and I'll be like, what, what is this C? What is this D? Like, I see all the A's and I see all the B's, but what is this C? What is the D? What's the deal there? What's going on? Are you, are you not listening? Are you not getting along with your classmates, the teacher? Like, seriously, what's going on? Instead of saying, wow, look at the A's. You're doing awesome, but help us help you in getting those C's and those D's up to where they need to be. I think we do that. I I know myself as a husband, there's been times I've walked in the house. I've had a nice, good day at work. And I'll come in and I'll go to maybe change my shirt or my pants or something like that. And I'll go to get them and I'll be like, oh, they're, they're not there. Oh, mate, laundry. So I'll go, I'll check the laundry. They're not washed yet. And my wife, who for the last hour has been preparing just an incredible meal for me, I'll go out and the first thing I'll say is, hey, babe, uh, laundry? the shirt before like I'm just being real with you guys I'm not I'm not hiding I'm, I'm about being transparent and real and I think some of you guys are in that that place as well where we have that temptation to to elevate the negative before I say honey that meal that you're cooking it smells really really good I'll worry about the laundry later in fact I'll do the laundry later okay but sometimes Sometimes we do that. We, we, elevate, we elevate the negative and, and we downplay the positive. When Paul right here, these people have not given to him in 10 years. But he's saying, thank you. Thank you for what you have given to me. You know what? I don't even care what held you back from giving to me these last 10 years. I am pumped and I am thankful for what you have given to me. I was challenged by that statement, but as Paul goes on into verse 11, he makes an interesting statement. He says that even though you have given me all this, even though you have supplied me, check it out in verse 11. He says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. So he goes from thanking them for their generosity to saying, but I don't, I don't need it. You see, I, I've learned that whether I have very, very little or whether I have more than enough, I've learned to be content. My circumstances do not matter. I have learned to be content. How many of you can remember back to the first time you rode your bike? That two-wheel bike. I'm not talking about a tricycle or a three-wheel or anything. I'm talking that that first time, the two-wheel bike. I remember the first time I did that. My grandfather traveled up a couple hours. He was staying with me for the weekend. And he was, he was I mean, it was like guaranteed. In his mind, if I was not riding that bike by the time he left that weekend, he had failed. 
And so he took me outside. He set up, I remember, it was like a little like table right here. And he like propped me up on it. And then he just kept pushing me away from it. And that first time, I'm like, Grandpa, I don't know about this. This is kind of, I've never done it. I'm nervous. And he's like, oh, you'll be fine. My grandpa is a very merciful man. And I, I, I love him. But he just gave me a push. And of course, I went about six inches and then just flat on the pavement. He didn't worry about starting me out in the grass, okay? It, you, I'll, with Marcus, I'll probably start in the grass, okay? But he was, it was all pavement. First scrape was right there on the knee. But he kept, he kept just, okay, get back up. He kept pushing me off. And, and eventually, I'd get a little bit further. I'd get a little bit further. And then finally, I mean, it was one of the most exhilarating moments of my childhood when I actually kept going. And then I was like, I don't know how to stop it. Like, how do you? <laughs> it was nerve-wracking, but it was exhilarating when I finally got it. But Paul is saying here that he has learned this contentment. And it's important for us to note that word, learned. Because Paul is saying here that, that this contentment, it didn't just like magically just come upon him and then all of a sudden, poof, like, wow, I'm content. No, Paul had to learn it. And for each of us in our lives, all of us begin this life, we begin as little babies and we are always in need and we are never content. I mean, Marcus, I'd set him down on, a, on the bed and a second later, I mean, just the littlest of things. But inside each of us, we have this sinful desire, this sinful tendency to be greedy and to consume for ourselves everything that we can. That's who we are naturally. And so Paul is saying that as he's had a relationship with Jesus, that he has had to learn through the situations where he is very, very low and has very, very little, and through the times when he is living in abundance, when he's living in complete productivity. He's traveled through both of these areas, and he's saying that, you know what? It didn't matter what my circumstances were. I've traveled through it when I've had very little and I'm almost starving or when I've been shipwrecked and I've been out in the sea for a couple days or whether I've been stoned. And I've been over here where, man, the Philippian church has given me so much. I have way more than what I need. I am living in abundance. Both of those circumstances, he says, I have learned to be content. As he transitions into verse 12, he says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. He describes it all here. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. He's learned the secret to being content in every situation. The secret, I think, and that, that we'll, the thing that we'll dive into If we go back to Acts chapter 8, if we go back to Acts chapter 8, we see a man by the name of Saul. And in Acts chapter 8, this man named Saul, he is overseeing and in fact approving of the first martyrdom written and recorded in scripture. Stephen was knelt down before this group of religious officials and people that had gathered. And we get this picture that that Saul is kind of in the background, kind of nodding, nodding his head. It's like the people are looking over at him like, should we throw the stones? Like, should we really do it now? And he's just kind of standing back there, just kind of like giving the nod. In fact, he might have grabbed a stone himself and threw it at Stephen. We read on right after that as Stephen is killed for his faith in Christ, that Saul was ravaging or destroying the church. He was doing everything he could to annihilate people of faith. That was his life mission. He had built his life up to this certain point. He had such a high reputation within the law system of the Jewish leaders 
He was one of the, the highest officials in the land, and he had devoted his life to protecting that, and then by doing that, destroying these people of faith, these people who followed Jesus. And so Paul, or excuse me, Saul, this is how he is, and he goes to the officials there in, in Jerusalem, and he says, you know what, guys? It shouldn't stop right here with Stephen. In fact, I think there's more of them gathering in Damascus. There's more people of the faith who are gathering up the troops in Damascus, and they're trying to go out and spread the the word. You know what we need to do? We need to go to Damascus. Send me, because I'm going to go there and arrest and potentially even kill as many Christians as I possibly can. Send me. I'll go. That's the type of of missionary Paul was. He wasn't out to save souls. He was out to kill souls. And so Saul, he set out on this journey, and he's walking down this road to Damascus with his troop of men, solely intent on imprisoning as many of those Christians as as he could. And we see in chapter 9 there of Acts that as he's walking, all of the sudden, bang, a flash of light lights up Paul's world. Saul's world, excuse me. It lights it up. And he beholds the wonder of Jesus. And Jesus says to him, Paul, why are you trying to destroy my church? He asks him that question. I mean, can you imagine? Just put yourself in like his spot. He's walking and Jesus himself with nailed, scarred wrists and feet says, why are you destroying my church? Like, what do you say? (laughs) Paul's speechless. He has no words because as he beholds Jesus, he realizes that everything that he's built his life up to to that point was worthless. It was garbage. That this faith in Christ was actually real and life-changing. And he realized in that moment that he was covered in sin. And in the power that only Jesus has, (laughs) he took Saul who was heading to Damascus ready to kill Christians and he turned him around to become the leader of Christians. Only God can do that. Only Jesus has the power to redeem like that. And Paul's life was never the same after that. Paul always remembered what Jesus had done for him in the gospel. Paul never let that day go by, I believe, where he did not think about that experience. The secret to Paul's contentment was that when he beheld Jesus and when he had experienced that type of forgiveness and that type of grace, Paul realized that whether he had very, very little or whether he had very much, that Jesus was enough that Jesus was all that he needed. Some of you guys are coming in here this morning and some of you are, are facing joblessness. Some of you are searching for jobs, finding, trying to find a way to provide for your family. Some of you are in, in relationships that are in turmoil right now. Some of you are coming in and, 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 and you're good. That's the way you would describe if someone asked you, how are you doing? It'd be like, we're doing great. But the incredible thing that Paul is getting across to us is that in those times where he was, was, was struggling physically, when he didn't have enough to eat, when people were turning against him, when they were humiliating him, when, I mean, he was literally on a, like a side of a shipwreck. Like he was laying on a piece of like pallet for like days in the, in the ocean. When he was enduring those times... <laughs> He's saying he was content. Like that is un, uh, it's crazy to think about. And I think for our minds, it's, it's hard to even consider that. But what he's saying is that when he met Jesus, when he was changed by Christ, 
That's all he ever cared about. That's all he ever needed was Jesus. And when he was over here, when he was filled with abundance, when these people were giving to him and he had more than he needed, he realized that all this, it still wasn't as good as Jesus. And when we are content in Christ, it puts everything else into its proper place, whether we are with little or whether we are with much. I want you to think about something. This is a crazy, radical thought. All of us are sitting in this room right now. In this very moment, every single one of us in this room that are believers in Jesus and have placed our faith in him, at this very, very moment, if every single one of us, if our reputations were stripped and taken away, if our jobs were taken away, our homes, if every single thing, possession, title, was stripped from our lives and we walked out that door with nothing to our name, do we realize that we still have more than we deserve in Jesus Christ? I mean, that is crazy truth. Because we all stepped into this world as sinners. We all stepped into this world deserving hell and judgment. Yet there was a God that looked down upon his people and said, I want them with me. And so he sent his son, Jesus, to pay that penalty that we should have paid. And I think when Paul, when he contemplated that, when he remembered who he was as a sinner and what Jesus had done for him as his redeemer, it changed everything in his life. His perspective was blown and it was changed And he realized that whether he was laying on a pallet in the middle of the sea or whether he was being filled up with gifts, that Christ was enough. That Christ was enough. Guys, the temptation that we have, I think in these situations over here where where we're struggling, we're searching for a job, we're searching for a home, we're searching for a spouse. In these times of, of searching, in these times of struggle, in these times of need, I think we face that temptation of, of saying to ourselves, God doesn't care. I've been going through this for the last 10 years, yet God still has not moved. He doesn't care. He's not there. Adios. I'm out. And we step away. We have the temptation of faithlessness. And I think over here, when we're living in times of abundance, the job is going great. In fact, you just got a promotion and a raise. Your family's going well. The kids are great. They're learning and they're growing. When we're in times like this, I think we have a tendency and a temptation to feel pride within ourselves. That somehow we were the ones that did all that. We have a temptation to be self-sufficient and to associate all that stuff with ourselves instead of realizing that it was God who gave it to us in the first place. And so Paul, he's, he's being real. He's not negating the pain. He's not negating the, the joy. He's saying it's real stuff. It's real hurt. It's real joy that we feel. But he's saying, I have triumphed over both circumstances because I know who my Savior is and I know how good he is and I know how much better he is than all of this stuff. And that is how he was able to be content. When Ariel and I... Um, we're, we're having Marcus. We were super excited. The anticipation was just mounting. He was our first kid. And um, it was crazy for us because Ariel, she didn't even know she was pregnant until she was five months along. Like some of you ladies are kind of like, what? Like, how is that even possible? I, I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I just know it happened. And I realized, wow, we only have four months instead of like 
eight months to prepare for this. And so we're super excited. We went to the, the, the doctor. They're like, December 20th is the due date. And I was pretty pumped. I was like, man, that's kind of close to Christmas. Maybe hoping like he would come a little early so we could have him for Christmas and kind of enjoy that time. And, and so we're, we're approaching the, the due date. We're getting more and more excited. Anticipation is building, building, building. And December 20th comes. I'm like, I got the car packed. I got everything ready to go. You know, the funny thing is I had the car all packed, but somehow I forgot to fix our garage door. And so I'm rushing out to the car the day of, and I can't even get the garage door open. I have to end up taking my truck. It was, it was a crazy situation. Anyways, the anticipation is a building. December 20th comes and it goes. And we're like, okay. December 21st comes and uh, we're waiting, waiting, waiting. Nothing happens. I'm like, babe, how you feeling? She's like, I, th- I feel okay, I guess. Like, I guess I don't know what to really expect, but I feel fine for the circumstances. December 22nd, December 23rd, come and go. And I'm like, when is this kid coming? Now I say that now very conversationally, but my wife was just like screaming that, like, when are you coming? And so December 23rd, we go to bed and we're just like, man, Lord, like it, this is, (laughs) it's in your timing, I guess. And I'm sleeping. I'm kind of a, like a, a big, like, I roll over a lot. Like, I, my arms move. Like, I've hit my wife several times. But in the, in the morning, like, of the 24th, Christmas Eve, I'm, like, rolling around, and I do one of those where I just kind of, like, plop my arm over, and it, it was just mattress. I'm, like, feeling around. I was like, huh, wake up. My wife's not there. Ariel is, is gone. So I was like, that's kind of interesting. And so I kind of like get my eyes all so I can see and I, I walk out in the living room and there's Ariel. She's just, and I'm like, oh my goodness, it's, it's, it's happening. Like this is really happening. And so I'm getting like pumped. I'm asking her like a thousand questions. She's like, babe, I don't know. Just stop asking. And she's just like walking around, walking around and pacing the floor. And so I'm like, like, should we go to the doctor? Like, how are you feeling? Like, I'm freaking out, kind of. I can hold my composure pretty well. But when it came to this, it was just like, I was, I was all over the place. And so finally, after like three hours of this, I'm like, babe, I'm calling the doctor. We're taking you in. I give the doc a call. And he, he, he wants to give me this list of symptoms. Like, is she doing this? Is she doing this? And I'm like, doc, I don't have time to give her a physical, okay? <laughs> like, <laughs> I just, I just need to know, should I take her to the hospital? And so we rush her. I rush her to the hospital and we get there. We get all checked in and ready to go. And then Ariel is, I mean, she, she went through labor for a, a long, long time. And we were in labor for about 23 hours, I think it was. And so we're like in the, the closing moments of, the, of this experience. And it, there is just... There's nothing like that. I mean, I've seen, I've delivered a lot of baby lambs before. And like, I've, I've been a part of that experience and God, I mean, it's a magical thing. But when my wife was the one in the labor and the pain, it was just a crazy experience. And so she's about ready. I mean, she's in the closing moments and I've been kind of watching the doctor's faces because I have no idea what to expect. And so I'm just kind of reading their faces to kind of get an idea of how it's going. Okay. And the doctors come to us, there were some things going on that they were unsure of. And so the doc comes over and is like, Hey guys, I just want to let you know, we're going to bring some nurses in here and they're just going to kind of be in here precautionary. We're just, it'll, it'll be, it'll be fine. And so these last final moments, I can see the doctors are kind of, they're, they're talking amongst each other, talking a little bit faster. They're kind of prepping some things over here. And I'm kind of like, okay, what, what, what's going on here? And so there were some complications. And finally, Marcus came into the world and he was gray and I, I looked over at the nurse that was on the other side of Ariel. I just kind of like, I was like, wow, that's incredible. And I looked at her and her face was just like white as a ghost. 
I mean, it was just like she had seen the scariest thing she'd ever seen. And so I look over, I'm like, man, that, that's not good. That, that, that can't be a good sign. And then they, they took Marcus, they rushed him over to this table, they laid him out, and I, I really couldn't see him from there because all these doctors had just kind of converged on him. And everything was happening so fast. Ariel was just like, didn't even know what to think after, I mean, she was almost delirious. And so all of a sudden, I see them carting Marcus off in this little, like, tray gurney thing out of the room, and I'm kind of like, what is going on? Like, all these tubes are inside of him and stuff. And about an hour later, the, this doctor came um, into our room, and I'm sitting with Ariel, and his bedside manner was not the best, but he basically told us, he was like, guys, um, there were some complications. He's got some stuff in his lungs. We're not sure if he's going to make it, but we'll come back when we have more news. <laughs> and we're like, what? Like, are you, are you serious right now? Like this, this little boy that we've been preparing for, that we've been excited to parent and be with and fellowship with, we were like, we don't, we don't know if he's going to make it. Like, what are you... You, are you kidding me? And so Ariana, we're, we're just processing this stuff and we were able to go up and see him before they took him to, to Riley Hospital. And we, I was able to wheel Ariel up in a wheelchair and we got to, we got to see him on this table. And he, I mean, he's just this small little guy with all these tubes. I mean, it's like, I don't, I don't know how to, a, a body that big can have so many like things attached to him. But I remember in that moment, like he was just kind of holding on to my finger as they were getting ready to, to put him in the ambulance down to go to Riley. And I remember thinking to myself, just in that, just that one split moment, I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know what was coming. I just knew what was going on then. And I realized this might be my, my one moment with my son because everything else was, was uncertain. And I remember in that moment, I, it was the most intense feeling of, of, of sadness and grief that I'd ever felt in my life. But I can say to this day, and I'll say it for the rest of my life, that one moment right there was one of the coolest moments of my Christian faith that I've ever had in my life. Because with my wife by my side, as we were praying as he went, we realized... <laughs> that that one little moment was more than what we had deserved in the first place. And I realized that that that, that one moment, and even no matter what happened, that Jesus was still with us. And that no matter what happened, we would still have the Lord as our Savior, as our rock and our comforter, that through those days of trial, that we would still be able to endure that because Jesus was our Lord. Thankfully, 10 days later in Riley, Marcus was, was able to be healed and we were able to, to rejoice in that. But that moment itself will always forever stick with me and I think Paul, I think Paul had a lot of these moments. I think Paul, when he was out in the raft, clinging on to the, the, the remains of a ship, when he was without food, when people were throwing stones at him to the point of almost death, and as he was awaiting to be beheaded in Rome, I think Paul had a lot of those moments when he realized that this world without Jesus Christ as his fulfillment, as his rock and savior, it, 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 was, it was nothing, it was, it, was, it was worthless. And all of this was pointing to what he was going to have. See, I think for us, guys, I think we have short-term memory loss oftentimes when it comes to remembering what Jesus has done for you personally. That song we just sang, how can it be, question mark? How can it be? Ask yourself that question right now. How can it be? 
that you are a Christian. It's a miracle. We soften that so often. It's a miracle that you are saved. And it doesn't matter if you were saved when you were five years old or when you were 55. It doesn't matter. Both circumstances are miracles. A pastor described his testimony one time, and he described it, and he proudly and boldly said, I was saved when I was six years old. I asked him, so how, how, do, you, how, do, you, how do you share your faith sometime with, and, and proudly share your faith? You, you were saved when you were six. God protected you from a, a lot of things in your life. And I asked him, the, the times does it feel like that's less powerful? And he looked at me and he said, Tannen, however many sins, you know, in fact, he said, I'll describe it to you this way. That first sin that I committed when I got out of the womb, that was enough to send me straight to hell. And he said, that was a miracle. At five years old, that God intervened into my life, opened my heart to see that he was Lord. He's like, that is just as miraculous as the alcoholic the, 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 the guy that, that said no to his family that has come back to the Lord and been redeemed, it's just as miraculous and powerful. Paul never forgot who he was. He never forgot what God had saved him from. And his motivation for the rest of his life, for the rest of his days was that Jesus was enough because he has already given to me more than I deserve. And in that lesson, he realized that whether he had very, very little and whether he was struggling, all of those struggles, all of those trials, he was learning that Jesus was his sustenance, that Jesus was his provision, that Jesus was with him in those moments. And I think he drew so close to Christ in those moments. And I think when he was over here, man, he basked in God's grace that God would would give him the grace to, to have these things. Because he knew that if he had nothing, he had more than what he deserved. He ends this, this passage in, pa- in chapter, in verse 13, excuse me, one of the most popular verses in, in all of scripture. I mean, I was an athlete. This has to be one of the most popular locker room verses in the history of sport. But he says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And sometimes I think we get this verse confused. I think sometimes we use this verse to elevate the positive, to say, you know what? In his strength, I can get that job. In his strength, I will just nail that interview. In his strength, I'm gonna be able to run the PR mile, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think oftentimes, we negate the fact that Christ can give us strength when we're low, when we're struggling. And in those moments, the light of Christ was shining through Paul's life because when he, was, when he had nothing, yet he was so full of joy and he radiated love and affection and compassion. People had to wonder, how? Like, dude, you literally just got stoned basically to death. I mean, he was laying on the ground because he was preaching the gospel to this city And when he comes to, what does he do? He gets back up and walks into the city because he wants those people to know Jesus. His contentment was not in this world or his circumstances. It was on Jesus and loving Christ and going out and loving people because of that. This message has been very challenging to me. But when we realize that Christ is the one that gives us that strength, we can do all things. We can live in the plenty 
with thankfulness that God is good and it would choose to give us that. And we can live in the low times, trusting that Christ is going to be walking with us, giving us strength and giving us the ability to shine a light even in the midst of that in such a unique way that people would see and glory in God's goodness. I heard a story, a young man by the name of Tim Vanderheven. He was a young man that graduated from Hope College with a lot of potential. He was tall, he was strong, handsome. Everyone looked at him, his professors, his classmates, they, they saw Tim and they were like, man, he is like the picture of success. Like Tim is the guy that's going to go out from this, you know, this place and he is going to rock the world. He's going to be a world changer for Christ. He's going to do all this stuff. He's going to get this job, get the family. Tim graduated and, and, and he got a great job and, and he actually climbed the corporate ladder rather quickly. He had great charisma, great personality. People loved him. He was on the fast track to being that CEO. And then all of a sudden, one day, his, one of his former professors was sitting at his desk, maybe grading some papers or something, gets a phone call, picks it up, it's Tim. I'm sure professors love hearing from their former students, so he was overjoyed. He was like, hey, Tim, how you doing, man? It's good to hear from you. How's life? And, and Tim replies, he says, hey, doc, uh, my parents are out of town would you mind driving over here to the hospital here in Grand Rapids? I, I'd, I'd like to see you. I'd like to talk with you. So the doc kind of confused, okay. So he hangs up and gets in his car and goes to, to Grand Rapids to, the, to this hospital. And as he goes into the hospital, he sees this, this team of nurses is around him communicating a message to him. And as the, the doc walks in, the nurses file out and, and Tim is left there with his old professor and and he, and he starts talking to me. He says, Doc, I, I've got bad news. They just told me I have an incredibly aggressive form of leukemia. And they, they, they were really honest with me. They were very objective. And they said that they don't, they don't know. They cannot give me any guarantees about what treatment's going to look like for me. It's gotten pretty bad. And so the, the, the professor just, I mean... What do you say when you, when you, when you hear news like that, when you're in a, a conversation with a guy that's just heard that news? And so they, they, they depart, and the, the professor goes back to the school. A few months had, had gone by, and the professor's working away again one day and gets another phone call, picks it up, and this time it's from Tim's parents. And uh, his parents with frail voices are like, Doc, you need, to, you need to come to the hospital now. Um, it's, it's Tim. He'd like to see you. And so the, the professor hurriedly hangs up the phone, rushes to the hospital as fast as he can, and a crowd of people are in Tim's room as he approaches the, the doorway. And as he steps in, he notices that, that this, this, this bright, handsome, strong, big young man that had so much life, so much charisma, was now reduced to this 100-pound person laying in this, this hospital bed. And as he, as he sees this, you can imagine he's, he's, he's taken back. Takes a breath, and he, he walks over to Tim's bed and realizes that, that Tim can't even, he can't even lift his head up to, to see his old professor. And so the professor, he, he has to get down on a knee so that he can be at eye level with, with Tim and, and, and he just is just sitting there. I mean, you can imagine the, the situation of just how hard that would be. What do you say? And so after a moment of silence, Tim looks at his old professor and he quietly says, Doc, uh, I've learned something. And uh, the, the professor is, is like, what, what, what is that, Tim? And he said, Doc, life isn't like a VCR. And the professor was like that. I mean, kind of was baffled a little bit, kind of confused, maybe like you are now. And 
He's like, what do you mean, Tim? And Tim replied, and he said, Doc, you can't fast forward through the, through the bad parts of this life, and you can't rewind back to the good. But the truth of it is that Jesus Christ has been with me through every scene. And he said, right now, in this moment, that is enough. Guys, as, as we think about this, what are, we, what are we really living our lives for this morning? Because this life is so easily entangles us. And things go, come about, jobs come about, life situations come about, and, and, and it just gets so, so messy. Our contentment is, is wavered and thrown about in so many different swings of emotions and actions. But what if we were like this Tim that was simply content that Jesus Christ was enough and that through his strength in us and working out of us, that we could endure any circumstance, whether bad or whether good. Jesus Christ is enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are a good God. There is none like you, Lord. You looked down upon us with so much grace and love all we had to offer to you was our sin. Yet you still forgave us. You still killed your son to be our sacrifice. God, how can that be? God, your grace is more than enough for our lives. And if we were to leave this place with nothing to our names, we praise you, Father, that we would have you and that that would be more than what we would deserve. Thank you for that hope. Thank you for that confidence and that joy, Lord. And we pray that as we venture through life's moments, that our contentment, our pleasure would rest in your son and what he has done for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.